All right, now time for questions on Genesis 3. First question, yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it says that uh, both Adam and Eve were clothed with coats of skins, which does that not typify that their sin was covered, both were covered? Because I know some believe that um, Adam probably was not forgiven and might be in hell because he was used as a type in Romans 5, you know, because of one man's disobedience. And many were made sinners. Um, all over Romans 5, you know, it talks about, you know, 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one. 19 says, for as by one man's disobedience we um, So uh, based on the fact that both were clothed with coats of skins, which could be, could be lamb skins, which would typify, you know, uh, the righteousness of Christ covering them. Wouldn't that imply uh, reasonably that both Adam and Eve were forgiven and are both in heaven right now, instead of how some believe that Adam uh, very possibly is in hell right now? Okay, your question. Is Adam in hell based on Romans 5, 12 to 21, that compares Adam to Christ and that we're all sinners in Adam? Which is, I don't believe that. I believe Adam was saved based on the fact that both were clothed with coats of skins. Yes. Yes, but you have heard the interpretation that Adam is in hell and unsaved because of Romans 5, which compares us being sinners in Adam. Well, Romans 5 is not explaining who is saved and who is unsaved unless they are in Christ. It's not saying Adam is not in Christ or any of Adam's descendants aren't in Christ because some of his descendants, such as we, we are in Christ and we're saved. So that doesn't necessitate, Romans 5 does not necessitate that Adam himself is unsaved in hell. Then you did point out correctly that Genesis 3.21 does say the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It's plural throughout that verse. Therefore, that clothing and that redemption was for Adam and for Eve, for both of them. I would also say furthermore, in chapter 4, when Cain and Abel are are both presented at the beginning of the chapter, how would Cain and Abel learn and know the truth of sacrifices and the meaning of sacrifices and the need to put faith in Christ? They would have learned from their parents, right. both from Adam and from Eve. And then, though I know somebody may argue, well, Eve could have been the only one to teach, but I, I'd like to use that as evidence that Adam and Eve taught um, their sons. Then Genesis 5. Genesis 5 has 10 generations of patriarchs from Adam to Noah. Adam to Noah. And typically, universally, these 10 patriarchs are seen to be believing patriarchs. Not an unbelieving patriarch, but believing patriarchs. From Adam, Seth, all the way to Noah. So, if that's the case... Um, then he would also be among the righteous, the redeemed. Adam would be. Yeah. Um, also, in Christian, in the in the history of Christian and Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, there is quite a preponderance of interpreters who believe that Adam was saved, and that he, they call him a prophet. Also, they call Adam a prophet. They call Abel a prophet. They they will call. Uh, Noah a prophet, They're, they call Abraham a prophet, so forth. 
These are all prophets. Of course, in Genesis 20, verse 7, Abraham is specifically called a prophet. And as well in Luke 11, 49 to 52, Jesus calls Abel a prophet. So it's not a stretch to believe that Adam was also a prophet. That is a true prophet, not a false prophet. Right. And true prophets are redeemed men. Right. So I would say Adam was certainly redeemed. And I also think there's good evidence that he was a prophet. Yes, oh, to further... And, uh, and if your interpretation of Genesis 3.20 is correct, which I guess it is, then that means that's an act of faith on Adam's part. Yes, thank you. Thank you for... he. Uh, this brother is reiterating Genesis 3.20 that for Adam to call his wife's name Eve, and if the interpretation is correct that she's the mother of all living, including spiritually living, right. then he is celebrating and anticipating that, which would be an act of faith. That's the point the brother makes, Caleb makes, that it's an act of faith for him to do so, which indicates that he understands and believes in what he understands. Yeah. Well, the fact that they were both clothed with coats of skins, to me, is very clearly explains that they were both, yes. you know, same. Yes. So, this absurdity that Adam was lost and is in hell now, where would that come from? Just a misinterpretation of Romans 5? I think it would come from a misinterpretation of Romans 5. Uh, many people misinterpret Romans 5, 12 to 21. Many people misinterpret that passage. Also, with Eve, it does say that uh, when she conceived, she gave the credit to the Lord. That she got a man with the help of the Lord. Yes. So she, she it shows her faith. that she has a faith after, after this as well. Okay. Right. Yes, that's good. In Eve's case, uh, your question was not pertaining to Eve, no. but did, does your friend also think that Eve was lost? No, no, I, it was always... A, it was always, I was always about Adam. Okay, well, in Eve's case, just to, to vindicate her, 4 verse 1, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. She celebrates that. And of course, they both were teaching, at least one of them, if not both, I think both, were teaching Abel and Cain about sacrifice and the proper way of sacrifice. That is, a sacrifice offered in faith Faith in Christ is effective. It is meaningful to God. Okay? And Abel, Genesis 4.4, 4, And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Why does the text say there that God had regard for Abel and his offering? for Cain and his offering. Why the person and also the object, the animal, the or the, or the offering? Accepted. Why was it accepted? Be, because of what? Faith. Because of faith, yes. That's why Hebrews 11 says the following. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. That's why it says, for Abel, he had regard, and, and for his offering, because Abel had faith, but not for Cain, because he did not have faith, and not for his offering, which showed he lacked faith. Yeah, it's curious, we go to Hebrews 11, that 
unless not, it's an oversight on my part, I don't see that Adam is, I mean, I'm, I'm not supporting this fallacy that Adam's in hell. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, why is Adam's name not mentioned here in these uh, patriarchs of faith in Hebrews 11? Why is Adam not mentioned here? Yeah, I mean, Abel's not clear in verse 4. Um, yeah. Well, th- there are many... Just in the, curious. Yes, you're wondering why in Hebrews 11, Adam's name is absent. I don't know why. But it doesn't say why. But there are other patriarchs whose names are absent from Hebrews 11. <clears throat> patriarchs and matriarchs of the Old Testament who are absent from here. Yeah. So. We have to presume that either Adam and Eve or someone <coughs> spoke... God's word or the gospel pertaining to 315 there, that message, faith comes by hearing, Yes. that had to have taken place for him to be, for Abel to be counted righteous through faith, which he did. Right. Yes. That's what you just read to us. Yes. It had to be that they were teaching the gospel for any of this to be acceptable. So it had to come from the parents to the children. That's what God told them to do in Genesis 2.15, 2.15 and 16.17, to teach like that. Um, I was going to say one more thing about Eve in Genesis 4. Genesis 4, 25. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. She attributes this blessing to God again and an appointment an appointment of another offspring instead of Abel because God wanted this chain or this genealogy of faithful men to go from Adam to Christ and she's anticipating it but she knows it's not going to happen through Cain but she needs another offspring and she's been she has faith that it is now Seth who takes the place of Abel who will be the ancestor of Christ and that's why Seth's name is mentioned in Genesis 5 from Adam to Seth onward to to Noah. And it also says in verse 26, And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Anosh. Then, or at that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's speaking of a general worship of God at that time, true worship of God, calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, as it says in Romans 10.30. 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Next question. Fruit uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, was there anything particularly special about the fruit, or was it the experience of disobedience that brought that knowledge of good and evil? Was there anything special about the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, or was it just the experience of partaking of that fruit? That's a, a question that's hard to answer because it doesn't tell us what kind of fruit it was and it does, the scripture doesn't say what fruit it was and the significance of that fruit. But if we were to guess, I think the best guess of the fruit it was was the fig tree because they took fig leaves and clothed themselves. So maybe because of the proximity of them partaking of it, they partook of that. But this is only guesswork. This is only speculation since the Bible doesn't name it and it does not attach an explanation. 
Well, I wasn't necessarily concerned with what kind of fruit it was as much as was there anything special about it that gave that knowledge, or was it the experience of the disobedience that then gave yeah. them knowledge? So it but would then, be the experience of disobedience that gave them the knowledge. Considering then the, the fruit of the tree of life, if it's the experience of it, then that would, the fruit of the tree of life would imply that there was something particularly special about that fruit that gave. Or it could be the experience of it. He could also, God could have also appointed the experience of partaking of the tree of life to grant life. Next question. So, even though the tree of life was in the garden, Adam and Eve had never eaten that fruit. Yeah. Correct. Even though it was there, it was one of the fruits that they'd never eaten. Yes. Even though the tree of life was in the garden, Adam and Eve never ate it. I say they never ate it because... It's hard to imagine that the fall, the first sin happened on any other day than day six. If it happened on day seven, eight, ten, twenty, thirty, hundred, then they could have and would have eaten of various trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if we take the evidence to say that they fell on the sixth day, then the first thing they would have partaken and desired to partake would have been the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes? Well, you think about that in regards to, he didn't put a prohibition on the tree of life, right? It's included in you may eat freely of any tree in the garden, but only the one tree was forbidden. So even though life was set before them, they chose they death. could have gone and ate of the tree of life, yes. their first inclination was to disobey yeah. and yeah. eat the forbidden tree. And yes, yes. This is someone without an original sin. Yes. Right. So it shows just how yes. the nature of man is. Yes, yes. Good point that even though God did not prohibit the tree of life, just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with no sin, they still chose death. With no sin, they chose death. So if we do have sin, original sin and actual sin now in our life, then of course we will choose death naturally. It will take a supernatural work of God for us to have a changed heart to choose life. Amen. By the way, this, this dichotomy and this choice is always presented before us. Not choice in the sense of free will, but choice in that there are two alternatives is always presented to us in the Bible. It starts right here in Genesis chapter 2. For example, when it says, Deuteronomy 30 verse 15, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, or life and good, and death and adversity, or literally death and evil. Life and death he presents before them. It's always this way. And even in the New Testament, it's a matter of life or death. So there's no way then Moses would have been teaching the people to put their hope in the law. In the law. Yes. To put their hope, even though he's setting it, as you said earlier, as a hypothetical, there is life and death in the law, and I'm setting it before you, choose life, but it would have been clear, because a part of the law is the book of Genesis, and a part of that is Genesis chapter 3, Yes. That it would be impossible for us to gain life through law-keeping, so we have to look for another way. Exactly. Which also in the law of Moses is the sacrificial system. Yes. Being taught. Yes, okay, your point is, is proper, that there's no way Moses in Genesis or elsewhere 
was teaching them to trust in their works, to trust in their will, to trust in their abilities, their wisdom, anything in man. He would not have been teaching them that. He, in fact, he would have been teaching them the very opposite. God presents it so that you might know that this is the true way and then realize you cannot follow that way, that you need to depend on the grace of God to be saved. He would have taught them that. For example, even in Genesis, does it not say in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's before the flood. And then after the flood. After the flood, he says in Genesis 8, 21, And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil from his youth. And he does not have youth in the American English definition that is from teenage years, from ages 13 to 19 or something. That's not his definition of youth. He means from the moment that they are conceived. From the moment that they are conceived onward, they have this evil in their heart. Okay? And then, speaking of Moses more directly speaking, Moses from his own mouth, that's what I mean, when he is with the Lord and about to die in Deuteronomy 31, God tells Moses these words about the people of Israel that he just led for 40 years, that rebellious wilderness generation. He says, Deuteronomy 31, 21, Then it shall come about, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants, for I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. They have evil intentions while Moses is about to die. And he says, I want you to compose this song, teach it to them so that they can memorize it because songs are easily or more easily remembered, right? Yeah. So teach them this song so that they can remember it in future generations that I predicted their wicked rebellion, okay? Then verse 27, 31, 27. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death? I, Moses, I'm tell, he's telling them, he's saying, I know your rebellion and I know your stubbornness. You have been rebellious against the Lord while I've been alive. I have put a curb on it. Whatever authority God gave me, I put a curb on it. You know from Sinai and other incidents, there was a curb on your wickedness. But then I'm going to die, I'm not going to be here, and God's not going to perform all of these miracles so much and so ominously like this before you after I die, and it's going to be worse for you because there's not going to be any fear and trembling of God in your eyes. Did Moses have confidence in them? No. Even though he told them, even though he told them to choose life, he knew they would not. Right. Not a single one. He's not just speaking nationally or generally. He did not think a single one of them would do so. Okay, next question. There was one over here. Yes. Sir, you had mentioned when we were talking about opening their eyes, uh, when they had the knowledge of the, of the, it, is, it is a tree, open their eyes, and then you, uh, 
gave some examples, and the examples that you gave was Elisha uh, and, and, and his servant opening their eyes. Yeah. Uh, the, the road to Emmaus opening their eyes. And then we have uh, uh, images throughout the uh, New Testament opening their eyes, opening their eyes. And all of those contexts, the ones that you mentioned, those were very positive experiences. That was regeneration. That was uh, a sovereign move of God. Yes. Uh, in this chapter, in, in, in Genesis 3, it appears to have a very negative sense. Um, can you, is there a distinction to draw, or were you simply saying, look, there's there's physical sight, and then there's spiritual sight, and, and they're, they're both important, but here's some examples of, of spiritual sight, and this this is another example of a bad spiritual sight. Is there, is there, a, is there a distinction that, that can be made or should be made from Genesis 3? Okay, when I was talking about their eyes being opened in Genesis 3, the two examples I gave were positive examples of spiritual enlightenment. This is a negative example, and that's true. It, I was just making the comparison that God is able to speak metaphorically of eyes being opened and have a spiritual connotation, a spiritual meaning to it. That's all I was saying. I was not saying that there was anything more significant to that. I just was trying to get it out of the realm of the physical because some people, when they read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, they are exclusively looking at the Bible in physical terms. And then once they do so, they come up with an absurd interpretation or skepticism wells up in them and they say, this is ridiculous, why should I believe anything in the Bible? So I was trying to get it into the spiritual realm with my examples. That's all I was doing. So in that case, their eyes being opened spiritually, was that they became blind, spiritually blind. Yes. In the other case, they were spiritually blind, and he opened their eyes, and they, they began to see spiritually. Yes. The truth. Yes. Yep. But doesn't that also, also um, illustrate the necessity for the direct involvement of God in the person's life, either to open their eye to their their transgression or open their eye to the redemption. Yes. So for, for this to happen, it takes the intervention of God. That's right. That's correct. So you could say that whenever we seek to gain spiritual knowledge through our own effort, it leads to blindness and darkness. But when we gain spiritual knowledge through the act of God, it leads to light and wisdom. Yes. Yes, whenever we seek spiritual enlightenment that is not uh, from the biblical means, we get enlightened in a sense, but we get enlightened into darkness. We get our eyes open into darkness. When people pursue the occultic world, when they cast, cast spells, when they consult witches, mediums, channelers, when they go like that, in a sense, their eyes are opened to spiritual realities that they have never experienced in the negative sense. But it takes the miracle of God to overcome that and open people's eyes in the true, good, spiritual sense. I'm just going to comment on how they had to have had faith and not in the sacrifice of animals, but I had faith in Christ. Because, I mean, God says that you are from dust, and from dust you shall return. So he knows he's going to die, and then he sees Cain die, right? Or, I mean, Abel, not Abel die. Um, but 
Abel gave a, the right sacrifice. Obviously, that sacrifice didn't stop him from dying. <clears throat> and since death is the result of sin, I mean, he knows he has to know that his salvation results in the defeat of death, right? Yes. And so he, he has to know that this these animals are not saving him from death. Um, and so when he sees Abel die, I mean, he has to know that it is more than just the Yes, very good, very good. Because uh, Adam was told that he will return to the ground, Genesis 3.19, and because Abel did prematurely return to the ground in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain murdered him, and Abel was a righteous man, then what would his redemption entail? It has to entail something more, and it had to entail the spiritual and even resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of the dead body. So Adam and, and Eve and all the others at that time had to have as their hope something future, something eternal, resurrection from the dead, and then an explanation on what basis would they be raised from the dead. That's why when Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also, John fourteen nineteen, And that's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right? Do you believe this? He said. So that's what, that's what he was coming to do. To fulfill everything like this. The important, that, that's a good connection between Adam and Abel. And what had to have been known. We still have to go back to the content of their faith. Right. If we exclude redemption in Christ from the content of their faith the object of their faith. What was the information? What was the knowledge that they had to believe? If we exclude Christ from that content, then it is vacuous. It is hopeless. It's only misery and full of vagary. That's all. If Christ is absent. That's why John 17.3 says, Jesus said to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And... The faithful interpreters of the past and, and modern ones will say that John 17, 3, and even John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Those verses are not only talking about people being redeemed after the day of Pentecost. It's not only talking about people being redeemed after the day of Pentecost and until the rapture of the church in the Great Tribulation though that is the current modern common interpretation. No, it has to be before the day of Pentecost, which includes the Old Testament, and it also has to be after the rapture of the church, which means any time future to the, in the tribulational period and in the millennium, it has to be only in Christ. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned in righteousness and all his relations. Um, 
the scriptures seen beforehand, preached the gospel to Abraham. Yes. And so Abraham believes in the seed and is accounted to him as righteousness, which, you know, it, it's a very clear connection to Genesis uh, 3.15. Yes, good. In in your studies in Genesis, you come, you have come to Genesis 15, 5, and 6, where God says that his, Abraham's descendants will be as the stars, and so shall your descendants be. So they are in the plural right there. So shall your descendants be. But in what sense could he have physical descendants like the stars and spiritual descendants like the stars unless he had a singular descendant? A single descendant who made that possible. That's your point. Which is the point of the Apostle Paul? You reference Galatians. That is the, the point of the Apostle Paul. He says in Genesis 3, 3, 6, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9. Even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Quoting Genesis fifteen six. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Faith in the gospel, and this is how Jews and Gentiles are blessed and are considered believers and are considered sons of Abraham. This is the means, faith. Not works, but faith. Faith. And then he says, it's verse 8, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Right. He'll explain. There are various ways to explain it, some short, some longer. Verses 10 and following. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Which he quotes from Deuteronomy 27, 26, Moses taught the people, you're under a curse. You, you all are hopeless cases. That's what he said. <laughs> you're all under a curse because you cannot abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. See, it's not just corporately, but individually. He says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, clear, obvious, you say it's not obvious, but it is obvious. For the righteous man shall live by faith. Within the Old Testament, after the law of Moses was delivered, in the time of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, 600 B.C. Habakkuk is 600 B.C., 900 years after Moses. Habakkuk preaches, the righteous shall live by faith. He's not preaching that if you obey the law of Moses, partially or fully, you'll get to heaven. Right. He's saying, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous. But faith in whom? Right. Faith in what? Verse 12. 12 and following. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. That is the verse that is from Leviticus 18.5. Moses, when he delivered it, also said that you would have life if you did them all. This is similar to Deuteronomy 27, 26. So now the object of our faith, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ. 
is the way. Because he died and became a curse for us. Now, let's wrap it up in terms of Abraham. Verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus. How else can we say it? What else is he saying? But saying, this blessing that Abraham experienced was in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Not in some vague concept of future redemption or some future mediator. No, not in any cloudy or dark way. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. Abraham believed in Christ Jesus and he preached Christ Jesus to others. But this blessing is also to the Gentiles. That's why he said, so shall your descendants be. That's why he said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's why God said these things to Abraham, that eventually there would be a time when Gentiles in mass would come into the church. Not only that, but he says, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Abraham had faith. Abraham had Christ Jesus. Abraham also had the Spirit. And so shall we if we are in Christ. The promise of the Spirit through faith. We also have the Spirit. Then furthermore, and that, that is to your point that the seed is a single seed. Right. That single seed was also anticipated is what he says in verses 15 and following. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, what, why does he say this? When it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. When God announces a covenant, does he seek from a subsequent covenant to undermine the previous covenant? Of course not. No. He just intends to reiterate it, he intends to corroborate it, he intends to buttress it, but he does not intend to undermine what he said before. Not his intentions before. That's why, verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. The singular seed was always in view because the singular seed was Christ. This goes back to Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise or crush you on the head. Who is the he? Who is the he? We have to ask. The he is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The purpose of the law was not to undermine the promise, but to buttress the promise, to reiterate the promise, and to show them in even more clear, clearer terms that their sin needed redemption in Christ. On that note, yes. I mean, like you said, how you mentioned like the number of commands earlier in, in the law, right? I mean, 
Genesis, there was one command. You know, there's only one. Because they, they, they had no sin, right? There was just one command. But then, you know, he, Paul says right there in Galatians, why was the law, why was the law? Because of transgressions, right? Yes. And, and it says Romans 7, I would not have known about punishment. And so, the law was never intended for us to keep it and then be saved by it. Because the reason why it says do not lie, do not murder, do not steal, is because we are liars and murderers and thieves. You know? yeah. um, he, doesn't, he wouldn't have had to say that if that's not what we already were. That's yes. why he has all of these commands, because that's what we are. Yes, yes. He added commandments. Even though Adam and Eve, sinlessly, they only had one command. But because of sin, there are numerous commands. And that's the point, as you alluded to, Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. It was added... We needed these warnings to reiterate the fact that we are liars and thieves and everything else. We can't be saved by it because all that it's doing is telling us this is... This is who we are. Yeah, don't lie because you're a liar. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All right. Thank you. We'll see you next time.